I'm Claire Edwards, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights, and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw, and authentic. I'm so excited today to be talking with Andy Holmes, the lens changer. Now, the audio quality isn't fantastic for two reasons. Firstly, I was using Zoom because I wanted to see Andy's face, and he's based in the UK and I'm in Australia. And secondly, well, this is my first podcast, so please be gentle. Andy shares with us some really enlightening insights into the characteristics that qualify him for being this series' connected leader. So enjoy. Andy Holmes describes himself as a lens changer, a thought provoker, a coach and a mentor. Oh, and when he's not inspiring people by helping them see a different perspective, he's a global capability and leadership director of RB, which you might also know as Reckitt Benkiser. They're one of the big four players in household personal care and health brands. Think Benish, Neurofen, Durex. Oh, come on, I had to include that one. The reason I'm so excited to be in conversation with Andy, though, is because, in my opinion, he is the epitome of authentic leadership and specifically connection, which is why this episode's theme is the connected leader. Andy is passionate about what he says, changing this ball we live on person by person. He's an igniter, an inspirer, a catalyst, and a connector. And these beliefs are reflected in Andy's connection with his people and his social media audiences, his unabashedly real and raw posts journaling, his own leadership experiences, observations, and opinions. Now, I spoke recently with Andy in preparation for this podcast, and I suspect by now he's thinking, oh, for goodness sake, Claire, will you just get on with the conversation and stop blethering on about me? Yes. He's humble too. Andy, welcome to Authentic Leadership. Thank you very much, guys. Great to connect. <laughs> it certainly is. It's been a long time in the making, hasn't it? I know. It's 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 amazing how uh, with modern technology we still find the uh, the things to distract us and uh, put time in the middle. But you know, it's for me. You know, I mean, we talked the first time. It, it's so cool to connect with someone from my homeland, but living in the land that I used to call home as well. So you know, I, it's it's awesome to speak to you. That's right. And that's what I love about technology as well. You know, it's uh, what time is it here? It's uh, 20 to 7 on a Friday evening and I haven't even got a glass of wine. And uh, you're just about to start your day. I know the irony is that I just as you said that, I can see that you're looking outside with sun blazing in through the window. And I'm looking outside <laughs> seeing dreary rain and clouds. <laughs> so your day's finishing better than mine's starting. Ah, oh dear, never mind. We all have to. We all have our troubles to bear. Hey. Um, you know, in the beginning, in introducing you, I love I love this term lens changer that you've coined. Yeah. And I I'm really curious. Uh, what does it What does it mean for you? And how did it come about? What 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 do you mean by lens changer? Well, it, it's a really weird one, and it's it's a bit of a convoluted story. So you you said that I'm fairly raw, and I am. So this story may wander a little bit, but bear with me. Um. So this this all started out. Um in 2013 and I was working with a, a colleague in the US called Julian LeBlanc who to this day is one of the most inspiring dynamic you know most incredible facilitators I've ever worked with so please look him up on LinkedIn but um, okay. super great guy very close friend now and uh, we went to TED in uh, in Vancouver 
um, I know what you're thinking, you know, tough gig, right? Hard life. It was in Vancouver. We, we were actually based in Whistler, so it gets even tougher. But um, the, uh, the thing with that was, was it was, uh, we, we went to part of TEDx um, and TED Active, which is where you can basically go up and do your own thing. So you can contribute your own stories. You can, um, you know, stand up and do your own TED talk. Um, and I had this concept that I, uh, that I wanted to talk about, um, and it was around the lens changer. Uh, my brain works very much as a uh, very much in images. So every story, you know, you'll you'll see in a lot of my my LinkedIn posts, and my my Instagram. But most of the stuff I talk about has an analogy, has a picture, has an image that is the hook for that. And the the thing for me was that when I started thinking about the way that our minds work, um, it's very much I I see it as we're currently operating in a world where everyone's working like an iPhone mm. to take pictures. And what we need to get back to is almost the old school manual SLR camera. Um, so with an iPhone, you take a picture, whatever it is to share, and everything you do about that picture is, is automatic. It's, it's subconscious. It's not thought about. It's not even considered. The consideration most people give to an image is, will this look good on my social media? Um, and so for me, the lens change a bit is really about, you know, if you think about an old school SLR camera, the first thing is you need to select your image. You need to select the thing that you want to capture. So there's mm -hmm. consideration, there's perspective, there's time spent in doing that. Um, then it's about, you know, how do I make sure that I frame the picture in the right way? So what's my, you know, how can I get the things that I want to be in that picture? Because I'm not going to be able to crop it. You know, what it is, is what it is. Yeah. Then it's about, you know, focus. Then it's about which area of that image, that frame, Am I going to select as the thing that I want to be the subject of that picture? Then it's about, you know, the light coming into the picture. Is, is there enough? Is there enough to illuminate it, to give it resonance? Is there enough to really make that sort of thing stand out and pop? And then the final thing is, is about aperture. So what is my depth of perspective going to be? How deep am I going to look into it? What's the exposure going to be? How much light, how much time am I going to spend absorbing, processing and reflecting that image? So all of this way through, you know, the reflection, the mirror in the camera, there's all of this stuff for me wow. plays absolutely together. So for me, I had this, this, this sort of talk, this concept, and I, I will still do it. So you've got it here. I will do a TED talk on this. Um, but but that was the perspective that. I wanted to tell you. <laughs> please do, please do. Um, and, and I got to Whistler, and you know what? I bottled it. We got there, and I, I was surprised by the, uh, the size of the personalities and you know, how many people have been there before and all the rest of it. And I bottled it. And we came away from that and we had some incredible conversations. And Julian said to me, he goes, you know, you're going to change the way, but you've got to do this. You've got to follow this, this, this talent, this skill you have for, for speaking with rawness and authenticity. And that's where the whole thing started from. The, the irony is that it's taken another five years, five or six years. And I went on a, a course what about two two months ago with Nick Craig, who uh, works for the Core Leadership Institute? But he he has a um, a program called Purpose to Impact, mm -hmm. um, which he's he's built. So he works with the likes of Brené Brown and 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 that sort of thing, and you know very very well known. And we went on this program, and we it involved us talking about our childhood, our experiences. You know, what did you do when you were four? What did you do when you were twelve? What did you do when you were fifteen? Where would you like to have spent more time if your teachers and your homework had permitted it? Um, Ooh, and, and you, you follow the you follow these experiences through your life and the big thing for me that I started to pick up was that every single aspect of my life I've done the same thing so mm -hmm. when I was a kid um, you know your, your school holidays you might be seven years old 
and you're bored because you, you've been off for four weeks or five <laughs> weeks. And, you know, you'd be sitting on the ground and I'd always be the kid who'd say, you know, I'd be looking around and think, you know what, there's, there's a milk crate over there. There's a bit of wood over there. If we built a ramp, then this is actually a pretty cool day. And we'd all, you know, we'd spend the next nine hours until it was dark flying off this ramp and doing all this stuff. Um, when I got to my, uh, my years playing ice hockey, so, you know, my, my whole skill as an ice hockey player was looking at the game, being able to almost disassociate myself from what was going on, read the game, where people were moving, where the spaces could be created. And everything I did was about changing the perspective with how I saw the game, making a pass to make a play to create space and change the game. So again, it was the same thing. Come into my, my personal life, my professional life, my career. Everything I do is about looking at something, being incredibly observant and curious and, and thinking, well, why are people doing things the way that they're doing them? What is influencing that? How does it work? What's the dynamic? And then the curiosity in my mind for my inner child says, what if we change this bit? How would it look then? Yeah. And, and that's, what I, that's, that, that's what I bring to what I do. That's the conversations that I have. So, you know, the irony is that, you know, five or six years ago, I had a concept that was just something that came to me. Like I say, my mind works in images. And then five or six years later, when I really do some in-depth work with some specialists on this, in this area, and the thing that everyone fed back to me was, Andy, you're the lens changer. You look ah. at things differently and you enable others to see that as well. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's where the lens changer came from and that's, that's how it's now been validated. Wow, and, and just listening to you there, talking about curiosity, what, what a powerful um, attribute to have in leadership is that it, it, that insatiable that natural curiosity and so i'm thinking about okay so how how in a way have you been able to use this skill this innate ability to see things from different perspectives to to gain depth all the analogies that you're just using about the slr and what are you what are the lenses like the leadership lenses that you're really passionate about changing what do we need andy well, well, I think for me that the first thing was where it came from and the biggest lens for me was I, w I was very fortunate. I, I started playing ice hockey at the age of, uh, age of three and a half or four. Um, wow. And I ended, up play I ended up playing professionally and captain GB and played in the US and all of Europe and all that sort of stuff. But the biggest thing for me about ice hockey was I was never the biggest kid. Um, I was never the toughest kid. Um, I was a skillful player. And what that meant was that I would typically be playing, walking into dressing rooms, you know, with, with guys three, four, five years older than me, because my, my, my ability would put me in that, in, that, in, that, in that older group. The challenge was that I would walk in a scrawny little kid and you've got, you know, it's quite an intimidating environment. You know, it's, it's a very macho, especially 20 years ago, very macho environment. Yeah. So I'd be walking in um, and immediately having to figure out who are the bullies? Where are the bullies? Where are the influencers? Where are the people who are safe? How does this dynamic work? How, how do these circles of influence and connections work? Um, at that age, to, you had that at that it, age. The, reflecting back, that's what you had to do. It was a survival yeah, instinct. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you know, if you put yourself in the wrong corner of the dressing room, you, you, you could get bullied for two or three years. And, you know, and, and I saw that happen to people. And, you know, so, so that taught me some very big lessons very early on. And so for me, coming into the corporate environment, the biggest thing I think we, we, we need to shift is, A, um, you know, changing the way that the circles of influence operate, you know, so often. And, you know, it's part of the, the, the hangover from the industrial, industrial revolution, whereby, you know, it, circles of influence are dictated by hierarchy. 
Um, yeah. You know, circles of influence need to change. We hear so much about inclusive leadership and diversity. And I'm sorry if my tone changes when I say those words. But, you know, for me, there are so many consultants, so many business, so many organizations who are making so much money or putting so much sort of corporate bravado out there about these topics. And, and they're really not getting to the core of it. All of this stuff around inclusion, around diversity, around influence, around perspective, it's just about being human. It, it's about getting back to the things that make us so incredible at the species that we are. You know, you look at things like attribution. You know, we're the only species who can do that. Yeah. But that in some ways becomes our downfall as well. It becomes our downfall. And those attributions drive bias. That bias drives exclusion. That exclusion drives influence. Yeah. You know, so, so it, for me, it's really about how can I, you know, you mentioned changing this ball. It's about how can I enable the people that I interact with on this ball, the world, how can I enable people to really understand and appreciate that getting back to what made us great in the first place is what will enable us to be great again. And that for mm -hmm. me is the, is, is the biggest shift that we need to make. So the lens changer that I have is how can I, through everyday observations, everyday reflections and insights, bring things to people's attention that until now have been fueled by their bias, by their assumption, and by their attribution, that, 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 that is, a, is a skill that we have, but is something that when it's subconscious becomes our downfall. So wow. really challenging the assumptions that we yeah. make. Do you believe an individual can change the culture of an organization? I absolutely do. I mean, it's the only way a culture can change. You know, culture ultimately for me, you know, so often it's delivered top down. It's created by a, a consultancy or a, a strategic leadership agency or whatever it might be. But ultimately, the, the culture is the sum of individual behaviors. And at some point, an individual will spark a movement. Movements don't happen from the top of organizations. Conform, conforming happens from the top of an organization. Mm. You can have a movement that can start from the top, but only if it's driven by a leader who gets rid of hierarchy. So, so for me, people follow the person, they don't follow the culture. Um, culture is something that has to be organic by its, its very definition. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what else? I mean, what, what else are you passionate about? What, what else do we need to uh, step up on in, in that leadership space, in your opinion? What are the lenses we need to change? I think that one of the big things for me is that is, is almost the, the, and again, it comes back to attribution or the, the finger pointing culture. So I think now more than ever, we're stuck in a, a state of um, flux where you have leaders in very senior in organizations who have grown up and, and achieved and been promoted um, because of their, 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 almost their demonstration of sustained performance. Um, you know, so they've, they've acquired mass inverted commas followings or, or, or mass hierarchies that sit underneath them. And they're really not necessarily qualified to lead the people within that. Yeah. Yes, they can manage a structure, they can manage delivery of, of, of key performance indicators, but they're not qualified necessarily or skilled or capable to lead the individuals. And when you look at the individuals that they're leading, it, it's more diverse than it's ever been from, from a perspective, from mindset, from drivers, from beliefs, from values, everything else. So, you know, so often what I see, and this isn't just, you know, just inside RB, this is across the board with this, you know, GSK I've spent a long time with as well, or, or just people I interact with, specialist consultants, is that we, we have this sort of challenge whereby people lower down the organization, look up and say, well, they need to change because I can't until they do. But then the people at the top of the organization 
in some in some ways are living in fear because yeah. every lever that that every lever they've ever pulled and has ever resulted in any sort of reward or positive shift doesn't work anymore. So you've got you know sig- you know for want of a better uh, analogy, sort of signal controllers at the top pulling the you know pulling their levers to get the rails to shift, and the organisation doesn't follow. Yeah. And that's a very scary place to be. So for, there's, there's a, you know, for someone like me, there's a, there's a job that I have to do to enable the, the people lower in the organization to appreciate and understand that the situation they find themselves in is no different to the situation the senior leaders find themselves in. It's just from a very different perspective. So, that, so when that, I'm working with senior leaders to create an awareness and, and humility and openness and sensitivity, or whether it's, further down the organization to try and help them understand that you know the things the drivers that they have just because they want it doesn't mean it can happen straight away and the challenge I, we have now is that sorry go on i was just going to say I, I don't want to miss what you've just said i think that is such a powerful insight mm. to connect people to get each layer or level or however you want to describe the organization to see that they're actually in similar boats and that that's just what you've said then is a huge aha moment for me because that's mm. an opportunity to build bridges, to bring people yeah. together, to connect. Uh, absolutely. And it's the, the, the challenges that we so often I see senior leadership going through the exclusive purpose based, you know, development programs. And really, when you look at it, they could learn so much from the youth of the organization around purpose, <laughs> around cause, around belief. But for the same token, um, the youth of the organization could learn so much from the senior people in the organization. But the challenge is never the two shall meet in a development context. And that for me is a huge flaw. You know, one of the things we start at RB is, is, is reverse mentoring. You know, so getting much more junior people to ment- mentor much more senior people. I was just going to ask you about so that. Insightful. How's it going? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting because what, what you see is a thirst for engagement from both ends. You see, you know, the, the senior leaders, in some ways, to start off with, feel very unthreatened because they see it, you know, as a, oh, well, you know, what, what could a, uh, you know, what could a youth or younger person possibly challenge me on? Um, so there's, uh, the barriers are down from that perspective, which is great. It's not like you're putting them in to be scrutinized by an incredible leadership specialist. But then for the youth of the organization, there's a, an aha moment that all of a sudden what they thought potentially wasn't accessible now is. And that the conversations and the passion that they have to drive purpose and cause and culture is actually something that senior leaders are receptive to. And where you see the success of this is you see these, these organic partnerships starting to evolve and start wow. to develop. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit like when you, you, know, you see these, uh, these initiatives where you um, put you know, toddlers into old people's homes. Yeah. And you see this, this aha, this, like, this bridging of generation. And no one really at the time thinks about why is this happening? But from an observer point of view, you look at it and it's like, this is fantastic because the barriers drop to an extent that, as I said at the start, we become human again. We connect with the very primitive things, the skills, the traits that that brought us in tribes in the first place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to change tack slightly because um, I was sort of uh, reviewing or having a little look at your LinkedIn profile this morning just to get up to date Mm. with everything before... uh, before we got onto the podcast. And I think I've just watched one of the most insightful 
videos that you've done and and remind me at the end of this podcast to make sure that um that we get your social media contacts that people can follow you but you know it's october 2019 it's mental health week and i would just love you to share with our audience your reflections your insights your observations around mental health and particularly the metaphor that you use because i think we can all learn from this andy okay um well firstly <laughs> thank you for taking a look at it um the uh yeah for me mental health week this year has been it's been a bit of a step up and the 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 funny thing is i was i was chatting with a guy um uh professor chris beady who's uh, a professor of uh, biology and neuroscience at canterbury university and he's a a very close colleague of mine, someone we do a lot of work with. And so he specializes in the way that the human brain has evolved. Um, and, you know, our sort of our old lizard brain, our, our mammal brain, our human brain, our, our exec brain, and how they, yeah. how they link together and how they influence how we behave and interact. And, and for me, that's, that's become a, you know, a, a fascinating field of, of, of sort of study and learning for me. Um, and so for me, Mental Health Week this week has taken on a different context, looking at it through that, through that lens. And it's funny, Chris said to me um, a week gone Friday, we, we, we were having a meeting and uh, he said, you know, 2020 is going to be the year that this goes big. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, there's a wave of, um, there's a wave of, of influence, of thought, of, of, uh, of purpose around mental health now that rather than it being a nice to have, it's, become, it's becoming recognized as the unpinning of almost the, the ability for us to thrive or the ability for us to fail in society. Yeah, um, yeah. It's got to that sort of, that, that sort of, you know, tipping point. And you know, maybe it hasn't got to that tipping point. Maybe our awareness of the significance mm. of it has, 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 has really started to increase. So we've had some amazing conversations this week uh, in, in RB. Um, we ran a mental health breakfast. Um, when I say we had people queuing out the doors, literally we had people queuing out the doors, you know, wow. the restaurant filled, um, you know, we have people sat on chairs, on tables, standing, <laughs> you know, sort of, it, it was, it was amazing. And the, the significance of that was that there was this real sort of, not, not necessarily a, a need to um, solve a, a perceived problem, but a want to have the conversation, yeah. a, a want for us, a, a real thirst for us to be better connected um, as, as people, as individuals, uh, a thirst for us to you know, be coming to a place that we really wanted to be, that we felt included and we felt warmth. Um, and, and that for me was a real change. You know, it, it was nothing about blame. It, it wasn't saying we're not getting this, that's why we're here. Or we yeah. think this is an issue, that's why we're here. It was, this is what we want our workplace to be. And, and that for me was a, was a very big shift. Um, and so we had some really, really interesting conversations, a lot of dialogue, a lot of humility and honesty. Um, and and what that does is it drops barriers, it builds trust. Um, and when you look at, again, I keep going back to this tribes mentality, the, the, the removal of barriers and the, the installation of trust is huge when it comes to community and society. Yeah. So for me, that was, that was the fact that the conversation anchored around that was a really positive one. Um, there, were also the, there was also the dialogue, dialogue around work-life balance, around pressure, around stress, around anxiety, um, this sort of stuff, which is stuff that a lot of people do feel. But the, the, the caveat to that was that this is so, so individual um, yeah. and that we have to recognize it as that. We can't use these terms and, you know, you can have 10 people who says, well, I, f I, I feel stressed. Every one of them will feel completely different. Um, so so the, the, the intent to listen and to understand is incredibly important. Um, so these conversations perpetuated. Um, I, I did a post yesterday and my, 
my uh, old HR director from GSK, um, you know, commented on the post and said, you know, I, I find this fascinating. I'd love to hear some of the, uh, the, the content of the conversations you've been having. But also one thing that jumps to mind is what about resilience? And it was a question that I asked a few times yesterday. Um, and just before this, uh, the, the, this podcast, you and I were talking and I said that, you know, one of the times that I'm at my most creative is first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's when my thoughts really run. Um, when my thoughts, my, my lens changer comes in, my perspective, and my really I start to consider things, things from different angles. Um, and it was the irony is I, I walked out the, out of the house to drop my little boy off at nursery and I put my coat on. It was raining, it was cold, and it was windy. And I thought, you know, I'm protecting myself against the elements. That word resilience popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started thinking, I thought, as uh, you know, we were talking baby talk to my little boys, we went to nursery. Mm-hmm. And then when I came out, I thought, well, I'm going to walk home so I can give, give this some more consideration. And one thing I do every morning is I never, ever check email until I've had a physical face-to-face conversation with someone. Never. What ever. a brilliant um, tip. What a golden because, nugget. <laughs> because, you know, Chris, who I work with, his, his, best, his, his favorite phrase is, you know, we all have the power to ruin someone's day. And, and emails normally do. nine times out of ten so for me you know it was about you know allow these thoughts to settle process yeah and then one thing about my my posts is i always do them in two takes if i don't do them in two takes then either my message isn't i don't believe in it enough or i'm more bothered about what people think than the message i've got to convey so the the post this morning around resilience was the euphemism or the, the metaphor was about that you know mental health is really about it's about it's kind of like putting on a coat so when we feel the elements, when we feel uncomfortable, we, we, we feel tense or anxious or cold or threatened, the, the thing that we do physically is we, we, we'll put a coat on, we put a layer on, we, we, we adopt a layer of defense, which mm-hmm. allows us to cope with that, the, the, the element that we're feeling. Um, but then the key thing that we do is once the sun comes out, once the rain goes, we take that coat off. Um, it's a bit like if someone walks into your house, they don't just walk in and derobe completely straight away. <laughs> you know, they walk in and say, oh, you know, let me, yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe it does, but normally what happens is someone will walk in from the rain and the host will say, here, let me take your coat. Yeah, can I and take your coat, it, yeah. It, it, exactly, it, you know, it's something, you know, I know from you being from north of England, we're, we're very used to wearing coats and coming in wet and sodden, but <laughs> that, that very phrase, let me take your coat, is it, it's it's an invite it's um it's it's an invitation to an area of security of safety yeah, of warmth yeah, yeah. um it's it's uh, it, it's the person conveying that i'm going to receive you now and i'm happy to do so mm. and and for me in order to have conversations around mental health we need to be able to enable others we, first of all we need to be able to see that someone else is wearing a coat exactly the, the analogy of wearing a mental health coat so if someone else is trying to cope they may be more closed. They may be less open. Firstly, we need to be open enough to see that. Secondly, we need to be patient enough and take the time and consider the way that we ask that question, almost that, can I take your coat? Um, you know, that is really important because the person is wearing that coat for a reason. So we need and to, we need to ask time. that question need, at the right time. We need to ask the question at the right time. We need to ask it with sincerity and with yeah. patience. So for the mental health people, that, that for me is the key thing. If you're going to try and help, A, you need to be open to helping. You need to have the time, you need to have the patience in it. You need to ensure that the way you ask that question is the right way. And then accept that that person may not take you up on that first time. Yeah. 
Um, you know, so you need to be prepared to do it a couple of times. For the person who's experiencing the, uh, you know, maybe not just, maybe just not being at their best. Mental health doesn't have to be about someone being depressed or anxious or, yeah. you know, these big terms. It could just be having an off day. But for that person, you need to sort of accept that every time you take that coat off, it's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. And we need to be aware of that dynamic. So that was the, the mental health sort of um, analogy for me this morning. The resilience piece was that resilience in the workplace is often used as a term of strength, um, as a term of performance. You know, this person, oh, you know, you know, uh, you know mental you're very toughness. resilient. Now, resilience is, well, well, exactly. And it's almost, you know, the British, we have this stiff upper lip mentality from, you know, from the, the warriors. But the resilience for me is not the ability to go out into the rain and, you know, run out in a T-shirt and just stand out in a T-shirt and take the elements <laughs> no matter how cold or how wet or for how many days that happens. You know, that, that's, that, that's, that's just not being smart. That's stupidity. Um, so for me, resilience is the ability to... Well, it is kind of, well, it, and it's stupidity. If you looked at someone doing that on a day like today, yeah, for me, yeah. you'd think that person, I mean, that's just stupid. Like, <laughs> but, you know, every day, every day in the workplace, you know, and it sounds ridiculous, but every day in the workplace, we are surrounded by people. We might be one of those people who walk into work and keep their coat on the whole day. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they keep their coat on the whole day. They may, they may walk in with a coat and a hat, yet, because we're not aware of it, because we're not sensitive to it, we just let them do it. And the problem is that for that person, it's very uncomfortable to take that coat off. So yeah. for me, resilience is much more about the ability to go out into the rain and then come back. It's about elasticity. It's about yeah. our ability to flex, flex and adapt. So you wouldn't run out into the rain and just stand out there in a t-shirt and get sodden. Yeah. You go out there and then when you'd had enough, or when you felt like it was getting a bit, a bit great, a bit daft, you come back in. Mm. The problem is that for people who are struggling with mental health or whom aren't resilient, they'll get stuck out in the rain in a t-shirt. Yeah. And the problem is that in corporate worlds nowadays, we let people do that. You know, we let people do it and we shouldn't. So how do we help leaders develop those sensitivities? Because it, as you say, it, it is, it's, it's, crit it's a critical skill. Yeah. I, I think for me, again, you, you, you picked up on this, but so often, you know, in the corporate world, as, as, as much as we, we like to think, you know, we put people first and people are our biggest asset. And you hear these phrases over yeah. and over again, but then you see organizations working people into the ground. Um, you know, for me, the, the big shift and my big role in this, the big shift is, is, is getting people to realize and organizations and leaders in organizations to realize that in order for um, people to be at their best, people need to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. So it's not about you giving people more training courses. It's not about you, you know, giving people the best tools and equipment. It's about you enabling and facilitating people to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. And that starts with the whole person before the person at work. So that can be physically healthy. It can be mentally healthy. But the biggest thing about this, it's about balance. It's about stability. If someone's euphoric one day and then down in the doldrums the next day, that, that's not the best version of themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, moods are our body single signal to our brains to tell us that something is wrong, yeah. to tell us that we're, we're under-resourced. Even if we're euphoric, it's your body's way of signaling to your brain. You know, it might be, you know, your body saying, we've got a sugar rush going on here. Yeah. Or I feel something, but there's going to be a crash coming. So, you know, moods are, 
our body's way of ensuring equilibrium in our brain. That, that where we've got out of kilter is that we don't interpret moods anymore. You know, you think about last time you walked into, into an office, could you say that no one in that office fluctuated in mood? No <laughs> one in that office was yeah. in a mood. And those are the very things that we should be paying acute attention to on a daily basis. So we, 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 hear, about, we hear about self-awareness in leaders. Self-awareness, yes, but it's sensitivity to and awareness of others that for me is as big as anything. And I think there's a big difference between self-awareness and sensitivity and just you talking about moods then is that we're so quick to to judge people, you know, little things like, oh, God, you get out the wrong side of the bed this morning. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're yeah. negatively labeling moods rather than just being them, them being that neutral indication to your body that something's out of kilter. Absolutely. I mean, we, we did a... Um... Uh, a name drop again, but we did a, a session with a, a lady called Natalia Cohen, mm-hmm. um, and she was she was part of the first all female crew to row um, the Pacific. So wow. they they rowed from San Diego to Cairns, um, and it took them nine months. You know, it wasn't supposed to take anywhere near that time, but they had nine all sorts months. of problems. But nine months, yeah, on a boat for for women. But the, the, one of the biggest bits of their training was, uh, was facial recognition. And it sounds ridiculous. I mean, of course you can recognize someone's face. You've been, with a boat on the, been on the boat with them for nine <laughs> months. But one, one big bit of their training was that every time they trained, they were in the gym, they were in a, a, you know, an education session on the water, what they would do is that if they saw someone's face change, they'd say, Claire, what does that face mean? You, your yeah. face has just changed. What is that expression telling me? What is it telling you? And what should it convey to me? And, and the reason for that was that when you get tired, when you get fatigued, when you get, you know, sort of, you know, I suppose, saturated with your environment, the, the fa- recognition and interpretation of facial expression and mood is the first thing that starts to change. So what they had to be sure is that when they were five and a half months in and they're running out of food and it was going to be so, so many weeks before they touched land, mm. they needed to be sure that if one of them woke up in a bad mood or is fatigued or angry or or feeling resentful of the situation or each other, that they could interpret that, be sensitive to it, and adjust record it accordingly. Wow. Um, so, so in some ways, be resilient to that. Not resilient yeah. as in resist. Resilience isn't resistance. No. Resilience <laughs> is the ability to flex and then flex back. So that, for me, was hugely interesting. Eddie Jones, who we did a session with um, about a month, six weeks ago, is the thing that, you know, for me, I mentioned to you that, one of the things about being in an office is that you don't get the opportunity to interact with people. So for me, one of the biggest things I do is I make opportunities to connect yeah. and interact with people yeah. who challenge and stimulate me. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I asked him was I said, you know, how do you enable these beasts of men um, you know, to, to be aware of the, the, the effect that their mood has on other people, on their teammates? And, uh, and he goes, that's a bloody good question, right? Your, your, your Aussie accent's probably better than mine, but he came up to me after the talk and he said, that's one of the most insightful questions I've been asked. Because yes. everyone asks about the tactics and the training and everything else. And, and he said that these, these people, and it's, it's no different to corporate, these, these athletes are working so close to their physical and mental capacity, whether it's in training or in a game, mm. that if you say or do the wrong thing, their capacity to flex and adapt is so minute that it's so easy to take yeah. a break. And, and for me, that, that is no different in corporate. You know, the corporate world is so pressured these days. Business is so difficult to, to, to get and to perform that we expect people to operate so close to their maximum. Yet 
we we don't always give them the flex or be or we're not always sensitive enough to the fact that our, our, our minute movements in mood um the little phrases exactly as you just said Greg, that the minute phrases that we use the words that we drop without even mm. thinking can have massive impact on on the individual on the mood on the mental health and then that goes straight back into culture you know so it it can have massive implications and and these are the things this sensitivity this this awareness is so so critical to ensuring that we can have tribes that exist yeah. in a positive state and in a balanced state i i i so, I so is, agree with is, you is on massive. that and you know you talking about the the neuroscience earlier on that you know we've evolved to default to the negative so where somebody might say something that is completely objective and neutral like you know can i see you in my office we're not jumping up and down yeah. and thinking we're getting a promotion you know, it's like, oh, yeah. shit, what have I done now? You know, we, yeah. we default yeah. to the negative and that, that awareness of our language, of our, um, our facial expressions, our body language it is, um, is so, so important. And, you know, you talking about Eddie yeah. Jones made me think of uh, one, of my, one of my heroes in leadership, uh, again, is in sport, is Jurgen Klopp. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. He... He loves his people. He loves his people with a passion. Yeah. The day that he started at Liverpool, he met the team and he, then he went straight to Melville Road and met and learned the names of the 80 people who work in the training ground and said that they were as important yeah. as the players. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting because you, you, I know one of the, um, the things that we talked about previously, you, you were going to sort of, we were going to talk about leaders that inspire me and Jurgen Klopp is, is absolutely one of those. And it, it's interesting because a, a lot of the leaders that I gravitate towards are, are, are sports leaders. Um, and, and, and why the, is the that? Well, for, for me, it's, and, and Eddie Jones, I mean, it was a fascinating session we had, you know, a fascinating conversation, but one of the biggest things for me with, with, with sport is that we in the corporate world think we are ahead of the game. Sport absolutely puts us to shame. Um, <laughs> I really couldn't agree more. I know that we have, um, you know, I, I know that we have challenges in sport with bullying, with, you know, with, with racism, all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying it's perfect. But I think when you look at an elite sport level and the way that these, the, these coaches are thinking about players, are thinking about the way that people work, it's, it's really fascinating. You know, Eddie Jones talked about some time he'd spent with the Chicago Bulls um, and they're, they're, the way that they've adapted to things like social media. So what the Chicago Bears, sorry, the, uh, the NFL yeah. team. And so they, they have 10 minute sessions because they know that if they have longer than 10 minutes, players will start to feel anxious and stressed about their disconnection from social media um, wow. because it's so, such a big part of what they do. So they, rather than ban phones, what they, they've done is they've, they've adapted and flexed it and said, look, this is part of the way the world is now. This yeah. is part of what, what people do. You know, these, these endorsements, these sponsorship contracts are worth millions and billions yeah. of pounds, yeah. but it requires these players to be accessible. So if we make them not accessible, that puts them under pressure. If they're yeah. under pressure, their mindset, their mental health goes, they don't perform. So for me, little things like that, yet in corporate, what do we do? We expect people to be, you know, sat in a box from eight until six yeah. and, and, and not do personal things, you know, yeah. not, not have personal phone calls. You know, I, I'd love to think at, at, you know, at RB, we're very different to that. And certainly we're, we're starting to flex a lot more, but 
when you compare us to the way that these elite sports teams approach things, yeah. we're, we're way off the game. Yeah. You know, we, we really are. Um, and you, you mentioned about love their players. And for me, you look at the, uh, the coaches and the leaders who, who really set themselves apart, who really stand out. And they do, they love their players. They show emotion, not game, not for, you know, not in defense of themselves, but they show emotion because they care. You know, one of our, our, our big values at RB is caring for consumers and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not there yet, but, you know, caring for, for you know, caring for consumers, absolutely, we're a healthcare business, but <laughs> caring, for, caring for colleagues is a big thing. You yeah. know, and, and a lot of people have forgotten how to care. Yeah, you know, forgotten how to appreciate and um, show empathy is, yeah. is is a massive thing. You know, it's something that I think we've we've lost. And you know, where you see success, you know, psychological safety is incredibly important. To feel psychologically safe, you need to, need to feel cared about. You need to feel supported. You need to feel that you can make mistakes and show your weakness. So, so you know, mentioned you mentioned Jurgen Klopp. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, Richard Branson is someone who's you know very passionate. Um, Eddie Jones, I'd, I'd cite my, uh, my, my, my PA in there, you know, she's, she's a leader right. who massively, ins- massively inspires me. She's, you know, she's 30 years old. Uh, she's got two kids. She's come back to work and the joy that she shows me on a daily basis, the, the humor that she brings, the, the curiosity and questions, the, the, the intent to influence, uh, an organization of 50,000 people. You know, for me, it is is awesome, and I love having her work work with me. <laughs> I love the fact that she upstages me. You know that that's, <laughs> it, 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 it. It's awesome. You know that's real authentic. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but it but it is, and you know it's it, you know I think so often, you know we we're, we're sort of looping back to the start, but senior leaders have been put on a pedestal for such a long time, mm. whereby it's frightening to be upstaged. Yeah. You know, I I think we need to get to a authentic leadership place yeah. where. Being upstaged is the goal. You know, surely, <laughs> how awesome would that be if you if your team upstages you and you, you can turn around and say, you know what, you got me. Awesome, yeah. I love that. You know that that for me is that's what that's what the goal has to has to look like. Oh, fantastic! Hey, listen, I want to. Uh, there's a, just one or two questions I just want to not finish off on because I could talk all evening with you. But if there was uh, of all the areas <laughs> of, of all the areas of connection connection and leadership if there was one that you could enlighten a leader's world with that could make the biggest difference to getting back to that human centric organization if there was just one Andy what would it be I'm, I'm going to give you one but there's a caveat to it <laughs> how come I'm um, not so surprised you see, you see what I did there um and for me the biggest one is empathy um, and it's it, it's got to be it's got to be absolutely authentic. Sorry, my uh, <laughs> LinkedIn's beeping at me. Um, it's it's got to be absolute authentic empathy. Yeah. Um, now, for me, the the biggest thing with empathy, and it it's one of the there's a there's a great book uh, called um, Unselfie, um, which Ooh, I would recommend your, your your listeners listen to and, and yourself. Yeah, Unselfie. Um, it's a big sort of a yellow, yellow front of book, but it, it's basically about the forgotten art of empathy or the forgotten uh, mm-hmm. trait of empathy in, uh, in, our, in our children, especially. And, and the biggest thing with it is that empathy is the ability to, to appreciate and understand how others might feel. And, and there's some really key words in it, you know, appreciate and understand, yes, but how others might feel. So, so for me, that's an openness to consider that other people may feel differently to you. 
And yeah. that, that for me is the big bit. You know, empathy is very different to sympathy. Very different to saying, oh, Claire, you know, I, I, I understand. I pre, you know, I, I, I'm really sorry too. That, that's very different. Empathy is me withholding my judgment, withholding my agenda, my, my attribution theories. Um, and it's me just being open to the, the, the concept that you might feel differently and that you will tell me that if I give you the space and create the safety for you to do so. That, that for me is, is huge. You know, I, I see it in my, uh, my little boy. Um, he was, uh, his face when he sees another, you know, he's 17 months old, but his face when he sees or hears another child cry. Um, I walked into, uh, into the nursery yesterday and there's a little girl on the floor and she was, um, she, was, she was crying. She was sat there and she was crying. And all he was doing, he stood there with a look on his face and his hands open. So his palms down by his side, but open oh. and facing towards her. And, and he, was, he wasn't doing anything. He was just looking at her. And, and for me, you know, this gets knocked out of us as we grow up. For me, all he was doing was, was trying to understand, you know, why, why, do you, why, why am I seeing this? Why do you feel this way? He can't talk yet. You know, he's got a few, he can say, you know, horse and cow and moo and that. <laughs> Um, it was just, it was the, it was the intent, just the openness, the sheer openness to, yeah. to absorb, to understand and, but the patience to just let it unfold, yeah. you know? So for me, that was, that was empathy 101, you know, Lucas, a tip of hat little buddy, like, you know, it, it was incredible, but to be empathetic, it's in order to do so, it's about discretionary effort. You know, we've got to a stage in society now where in order to, um, really be sort of be empathetic. You've got to have mental and physical capacity to, to, to be that one. You know, so, you know, I go back to, you know, the, the phrase that we talked about, be, you know, to, 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 to be your best, you've got to be the best version of yourself. Um, you know, so to be empathetic, you've got to have the, the energy in terms of mental and physical reserves to do so. You know, so if you consider a culture, you know, we say we want cultures to be empathetic. There's got to be a catalyst, you know, so someone at some point is going to have to build that capacity in themselves to then give that energy, that patience, that empathy to someone else. That then reciprocates and that then starts to become a catalyst and that then starts to create a movement. So, you know, for me, empathy on the surface, yes, absolutely, that's the biggest thing we can, we can instill in our leaders and create and build. But capacity will drive empathy. Yeah. And if we keep screwing people to the ground, if we keep pushing people to within an nth of comfortable and where they're capable, that, mm. that's not going to happen. At some point, a business has to say, you know what? A percent less on the profit or on the cop will drive a capacity for our organization to shift. You can't have both. And it's a choice. Oh, Andy, 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 listen. <laughs> Just the the amount of insights that I I want to borrow your brain for a day. Um, you what? Do you know what keeps you can have What keeps coming to me is you know, when are you going to write a book? I know you. I mean, I follow you. I need to. Bugs and what have you. You you really do because you are again coming right back to the beginning. You epitomise your authentic leadership for me. This is what 21st century leadership needs, and that you know. And to finish on that role of empathy, and I was just, I was just thinking of a of a saying that I heard recently. You know, the old saying is that you you can never really understand or judge someone until you've walked two miles in their shoes. And, yeah. And the little addendum was that you've got to remember to take your own shoes off first. 
<laughs> I love that. Love it. And isn't it great? Isn't it great? Yeah, yeah. Now absolutely. Listen, we're coming to the top of the hour. I know you're super, super busy. I, uh, it's just been an absolute joy to have this conversation. We didn't cover any of the questions we were going to. But <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's the best way, right? We both suspected it was going to go that way anyway. Um, listen, <laughs> yeah. where, how can people follow you on social media? I, I, I'm a, Instagram, uh, Twitter, what's your... What's yeah, your... so, so my, uh, I, 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 ironic, I don't do Twitter. Um, for, for me, I, ironically, Twitter is everything that... I hate about social media. Um, it's you know I, I get it has its place, but I think a lot of people use it for me in the wrong way. And it, it it's, it's actually I saw an interesting stat yesterday from Ofcom in the UK. Twenty five percent of people who have a mobile phone contract in the UK make less than five phone calls a month. Wow. Yeah, frightening, frightening. So for me, if you're going to tweet something, have a conversation with someone and tell them. That would be, <laughs> that would be my my big bit. Um, but uh, Instagram, you know, I find Instagram incredibly cathartic. You know, I love images. As I've said, my images and then I love writing about them. So my Instagram is the lens changer. Um, so all one word, the lens changer. And mm -hmm. uh, my uh, my LinkedIn is, uh, I don't you know what my LinkedIn is. I'm sure you can you can add it to the profile, but it's just Andy Holmes. Um, That's right, because uh, yeah, people can follow you. They don't necessarily need to connect with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but if they're going to connect, you know, if they're going to follow Please comment, like, share, you know, especially comment. I love the conversation. I love the dialogue. And it's amazing how big these, these conversations can get. So don't underestimate the power of that. So it's been, yeah, it's been a huge pleasure, Claire. You know, I love the work that you've done previously. And I've got a feeling this won't be our last chat. I've got a feeling it won't be either. Andy, keep changing this ball one person at a I time because you are on a mission. Thank you so much. I'd love to. Thank you and have an awesome <laughs> weekend. Cheers, Yeah, Claire. you too. Go well. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.